Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. So, good afternoon. I'd like you to sit in a way that's comfortable so that you can be attentive and so that you can listen with your whole body. Sometimes when somebody's at the front of the room giving a talk and you're in the chair listening, we tend to listen because of the way we've been educated intellectually. So that means as I'm talking, you're going to be comparing what I'm saying to what you know already to see if it works with your worldview or not. And so I would like it, uh, as we continue this afternoon, uh, if you can listen with your whole body. So it means not so much comparing and contrasting, but just putting aside what you um, believe in or what you think you know uh, about practice or the world and we'll see together if we can come up with something that um, we all might learn from, including me. It's nice to be here with this beautiful weather. <laughs> and it's, it's nice for me to be in this room too, aside from the fact that I know many of you. Um, and I've spent a lot of time in this room um, teaching. Um, I've also spent time in this room studying. Um, I used to audit courses here in this room. And, uh, and in grade seven, I used to hang out a lot behind this building, smoking cigarettes <laughs> and trying to hop on trains. In grade six, I decided I wanted to be Jack Kerouac. And so I used to hang out back here and. Um, I jump on trains, go as far as Dufferin, and then get freaked out and jump off. That was my persona at the time. So um, I just wanted to start by reading the passage that I read earlier today, or earlier this afternoon, where the Buddha is talking about uh, how to practice meditation and after discussing following the inhale and the exhale whether it's short or long he says acting in full awareness when one is going forward and returning when looking ahead and looking away acting in full awareness when flexing and extending your limbs 
acting in full awareness when wearing robes or whatever you're wearing or carrying your bowl or whatever you're carrying. Acting in full awareness when eating, drinking, consuming, and tasting. A bhikkhu is one who acts in full awareness when defecating and urinating, who acts in full awareness when walking, standing, sitting, <laughs> falling asleep, waking up, talking, and keeping silent. That includes just about everything, all the mundane activities of our lives. And I think what's interesting about this is he doesn't talk about being in full awareness in some peak state. He talks about full awareness defecating, urinating, going forward, going backwards. Awareness of all the simple details of our lives. So this practice is radically simple. We're not teaching about the different layers of, or levels of samadhi, or the different jhanas we can enter into, and all the different forms of access concentration, or the 18 categories of emptiness. We're talking about walking, going forward, going back, noticing flowers, noticing architecture, noticing the sound of cars coming and going, or the sound of your own thoughts parading through awareness over and over again. So simple. So I thought one of the ways we can go deeper into connecting this to what happens in your daily life is with uh, a story, a dialogue, a koan from the Book of Serenity. This is a translation by John Dido Lori. Uh, the Thomas Cleary translation is good too if you want to look it up. Um, so listen carefully and I'll repeat this many times. Um, just so you know, uh, these old stories, especially from the Chan and the Zen traditions, they don't work intellectually. They're just paradoxes that will, will confuse you if you just try and figure it out with your mind. Um, so as I'm, I'm talking about this koan, I want you to just feel it in your body and relate it to your whole life um, so that it's not a paradox, but rather it's, it's something that, that you can live and explore without needing an answer. Dizeng asked Zuishan, where do you come from? Zuishan said, from the south. Dizang said, how is Buddhism in the South these days? Zuishan said, there's extensive discussion. Dizang said, how can that compare to me here planting the fields and making rice to eat? There's more, but I'll stop there. So listen closely. Where do you come from? This is a bit of a test question, right? Where do you come from? How do you answer that? Imagine if someone, imagine if you went to a party and someone, well, in Toronto, if you go to a party, the first thing someone says is, what do you do? But imagine if they said, where do you come from? 
how do you answer this question? Although this is more than a party, this is a, a teacher asking a student, where do you come from? And the student doesn't really get it. You know, I, I'm from the South. Well, what, what does that mean exactly? I'm from the South. Well, how is Buddhism doing in the South these days? Could you imagine someone asking this question? You know, how is the economy in Ontario? This huge, huge question. And the answer is there's extensive discussion. And what this refers to is, a, is, a, is an old, um, is a political situation uh, within the religion of Zen at the time, which is in the South, the teaching was becoming codified and more elite and more monastic and more professional. Things were getting written down. And, and, and the, the core of Buddhism started to become intellectual debate. Right. And so how is Buddhism doing in the South? Well, there's a lot of intellectual debate. And maybe we can relate to this, because I think a lot of people who come to meditation practice come because they first get interested in it by reading books. So how many of you are book meditators? Do you want to put up your hand? Yeah. Oh, really? <laughs> and uh, so many people, you know, we, we read books about meditation, and then it takes like about a decade to actually sit down and do the practice. And as you can see from the day-to-day, -day, the, the practice is so very different than anything you can read about. A book can't do for you what the practice can do for you, even though the books are very important. So, so the map of practice is not the territory of practice and can't ever be the territory of practice. So in the South, the practice is characterized by extensive discussion. And the response to that is, well, how does that discussion relate to me planting the fields and making rice to eat? The question is not, how are those teachings going to secure me a better life when I die? The question is not, where did I come from in a metaphysical sense? The question is not, um, or, or the response is not, um, uh, how are these teachings going to get me out of this body? It's how is the teaching uh, related or how are those discussions related to me here planting the fields and making rice to eat? Could you pick something more mundane? If you're a rural person in an agrarian society, what you're doing all day is checking on the fields, right? And you're walking, going forward, extending your limbs, urinating, defecating, and so on. How is this practice related to, to breastfeeding, to parenting, to cleaning your house, to washing the floor, to writing, to reading. How is this practice related? Any thoughts? Any thoughts? How is what we're doing here, or even what we're discussing, related to your everyday life of making rice and planting fields, whatever the fields are for you? Feel free to, to speak up. It's a column, there's a question. You're being asked. This is not just like, oh, one time somebody said, they're speaking to you. 
How, how is this discussion about your practice and what you're doing related to planting fields and making rice? It makes it more alive. Make, how so? How does it make it's it more? more beautiful or more alive? Yeah. Um, for, for me, it's seeing life as it really is, and really trying to pay attention to reality of what it really is, not what I want it to be, uh-huh. but, but to call awareness even in the everyday things that I do. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Felicia? Uh, waking up to any moment, whatever the moment is. Mm-hmm. I like this language of waking up. Words like enlightenment don't do much for me. But the, but this term waking up, I get that. I, I have this feeling that this practice is just waking up and waking up and waking up and waking up over and over again. And what we're waking up out of is the, 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 the veil or the scrim that is always in front of the sense organs that's filtering our experience. And maybe you also notice this in walking meditation today, is being able to walk if you were in this room or being able to walk outside in a way where every step is fresh. Every step you're starting again. Or following the inhale, where at the inception of every inhale, that moment is brand new again. Is it possible to live in that way? where these, these mundane activities like planting the fields or making rice um, are creative acts. Somebody else? Yeah? I think I related to when you're nine and summer lasts forever. Uh-huh. Like months instead of weeks. Yeah. And so it's an awakening to, to that period of time that every moment is special. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as you go, get older, time goes faster. Mm-hmm. So it's slowing it back down so that you can appreciate every moment that you're in. Yes. Th- there's a relationship between the way we're caught up in storytelling and our experience of time. The, the, the more we are caught up in how we want things to be or wish they were, the more we're outside of time and, and relating to time as this thing that's either going too fast or too slow. We all know that sometimes a second can take an hour and sometimes an hour can take a second. So you might even notice this in meditation practice that sometimes the bell surprises you when, when, you're, when you're fully there, sitting, open to the environment, the bell rings and the bell rings. Or when you're caught up in, in uh, compulsive thinking and obsessions, then you're also a little bit impatient, and then you're waiting for the bell to ring. Or when the bell does ring, it's a relief. Did anybody notice this? Yeah. And then you start projecting onto the person closest to the bell. Maybe they're not doing their job so well. Are they really watching the time? It's been 30 minutes for sure. Um, so So there's a relationship between aversion to what's going on in your experience 
and an increased sense of the time. So you could even say that, 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 that our experience of suffering is actually a, a disconnection between fully being time and being outside of time, hoping the time will work in our favor. And isn't this what impatience is? Right? Impatience is when, when we don't want what's happening to happen the way it's happening. For those of you who, who are in the helping professions, therapists or nurses or doctors or whatever, we all know this, that, that when there are clients who we're working with, is that somebody's something? When we're, when we're working with people and uh, we find that we're not concentrated, we're not fully there with them, and we're caught up in the ways we want them to be or how we think they can change, we start to become more aware of the time in our sessions. I've had sessions where I've, I've looked at my clock and think the batteries are, are broken or have run out because I, I'm so bored. You know? and, and then I become hyper aware of the time. And then I've also had sessions where they go by so fast because I'm fully engaged with my own experience and with somebody else's experience. So it's interesting to look at this practice in terms of time and our relationship to time. There was a hand up, Marty. It's uh, a little bit like being with my four-year-old grandson uh-huh. who, is, uh, who is present and he loves this and then he hates it and no, he really does love it after or yeah. he is it. He's spontaneous yeah. and immediate and he's just dazzled by it all. Uh-huh. Or not. Yeah. He's, he's, he's there and then. Yeah. 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 We see this in kids before we send them to school. Um, I have I have a son who's six and a half, and and I just took him recently to Montreal, and uh, uh, we we go there often, and we're we're coming home, and we're in the taxi, and I said to him, "How was?" Oh, and he had this little plastic uh, uh, toy that he was playing with. And I said, so wasn't Montreal amazing? Which is not really a question. <laughs> Wanting to sum up. And then I found myself a few minutes later, he, he, wasn't, he was busy with his toy. And I said, wasn't that a great trip? And you know, we hung out with my sister. Wasn't it great seeing your aunt? And he said, yeah. He was just into his toy. And then I caught myself noticing the way that the, the weekend was ending and I was summing up how the weekend went. But he doesn't sum up how a weekend goes. He doesn't even think much about when the weekend started and when it ends. And yet I'm framing the whole weekend and saying whether it was good or it was bad. How ridiculous. I mean, even within an hour, the range of moods and experiences is all over the place. And I'm trying to create this artificial story that we had this great weekend in Montreal. Well, if I was fully in the great weekend, I wouldn't be talking about it. And he's just there with, and all he can talk about is the toy he's playing with. 
and then we get on the airplane, and then he's just into whatever's going on in the airplane. And then we get home, and he just, you know, wants a snack before bed, and then doesn't want to go to sleep, and wants to read a book, and then he's fully into the story of the book and where we left off last week. He doesn't stop and say, you know, the whole weekend was X or Y or Z. And this is what we do, right? We, we take our experience and we contextualize it to create a grander story about how things are, which completely misses what's actually going on. And, and I think just following breath by breath, we can really notice this. Yeah. And, and kids remind us of this. They remind us of this. How is Buddhism in the South these days? There's extensive discussion. That's what we're doing now, isn't it? Yeah. So sometimes discussion's good because it helps refine what our practice is. And then there's a time to just put all the discussion to the side and to actually focus on the practice that we're doing. Yes? Yeah, of course. I'm not playing devil's advocate, but what's wrong with labeling an experience as good or a moment as good? Nothing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're, we're humans, and we live in this medium of language. It's how we make sense of our experience. The problem is when we're in storytelling mode and we don't see what we're doing. So when we confuse what we think is going on with what is actually going on. We do this all the time with other people, right? We have an idea about somebody. We think that's who they are. This is the problem with diagnosis, right? You frame somebody in a diagnosis, but nobody is a depressed person. Nobody is an angry person all the time. Nobody is schizophrenic all the time. I, I had a roommate last year who always lost her purse. And I said to her one day, you always, she lost her purse. It wasn't a very compassionate response, but the first thing I said was, you always lose your purse. And she said, if I always lose my purse, I wouldn't have lost my purse. <laughs> so the problem is not that we tell stories. The problem is twofold. One is, most of the time, that's the only band of consciousness we're in. And, and, and we can't stop. We don't actually have the skill set to stop. And secondly, that when we're telling stories whether they're grand metaphysical narratives about how the world was created or whether the, the structure of reality are um, molecules or atoms or strings or whatever, whether they're religious stories or whether they're personal stories, even the stories we have about ourselves, we don't see them often as stories. And, and, and what meditation shows us is, A, how to see the narrative and not believe it. And secondly, over time, how to, how to stay close to something other than that constant thought process so that we can experience our lives without um, the clinging and reactivity that characterize storytelling. 
There's nothing wrong with storytelling. We all love a good stories. Cultures thrive on stories. Stories wake us up sometimes to, to more creative ways of being. You know this for those of you who are therapists, of people who come into your office who've done therapy um, and who say things like, I can't tell you the story of my life. I, I can't tell that story again. Right? And we all get this phase, hopefully, where we, we've told a story so many times, we actually have to, to have to retell the story in a more creative way because we finally see it as, as historical and stale. And all you are, all the self is, is a story. That's what you are. You are a story. And, and the way that most spiritual traditions look at that is that because you're a story, you're always in the egoic world of storytelling and you need to get rid of that. But this makes no sense at all. We don't ever want to get rid of storytelling for good or you wouldn't be able to operate creatively in the world. And people misinterpret this as, as, as the emptiness of the self. It is to get into a state of emptiness where there's no more storytelling. This is a temporary phase that can happen in meditation practice. But, but, but what this really means is that because the self is a story, it's an art project. And it, it, it's a story that we're constantly reworking. And to see how we're constantly reworking ourselves is, is to see creativity in our lives. And that we're constantly making our lives. That we set our lives, this is my life, I live in the country, I'm a rural person, I'm connected to the natural world, I have nine children and we grow all our own food and whatever your, your story is. And then suddenly your kids move out, your relationship ends, you sell the property and you're living in a condominium at Bay and Bloor. <laughs> okay? And now you have an, and how you respond has everything to do with your agility. Your agility to be derailed, for your stories to be derailed and to respond, and, and, and meditation allows you to become like a virtuoso so that, that, that you can play the part, that, that play the conditions that are showing up. And, and seeing the self as that fluid is what frees us up. And this is what's considered freedom in the yoga tradition and in the Buddhist tradition, is, is freedom to see how the self is this fluid, creative process with very little structure, very, very little structure. And that everything that structures the self is also a fluid process, which is a much more organic way of creating a life where the path of our life is, is weaving together conditions that are impermanent. Rather than trying to structure our life with, with a fixed bank account and a fixed plan for our retirement and everything's so fixed that when something gets shifted the whole thing cracks. And in a way what we're doing in meditation and what we're doing as therapists is, is to find a way of living that, that is more artful and more fluid so that we're in tune with conditions that are changing not fixed. Yes. Is that what makes us so uncomfortable? Yes. Okay. 
<laughs> I could ask you more about your question. I don't know. No, what? no that's just to know that it can be uncomfortable, that that's um, I think traditionally that the motivation for practice is when you have suffered so much that you start to realize that the things that your culture offers you, uh, shopping, um, a new car, stainless steel appliances, your ninth kitchen renovation, owning a house, I mean, whatever you think the next thing is that will make you happy, when you start to realize that doesn't work and you stop, then what happens is you start to embrace the fact that there is pleasure and joy in our lives and there's exactly the opposite. And to sit still and meditate is to commit to that whole spectrum I think sometimes we go to meditation practice because we want peace. The problem is, is that meditation is not going to bring just peace. It's going to bring the whole spectrum of what our lives are about. And uh, in that spectrum is going to be pain and discomfort and jealousy and envy and greed, hatred, confusion, competitiveness, and so on. And all of that over time will show up in your practice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there is, I mean, I when I when I was talking about there is some um, well I guess freedom in that, I guess. Yeah. And beauty. That's what I consider beauty, is if yes. you've been so contained uh -huh. to have that little bit of an opening yeah. is uh, amazing. Uh -huh. Like a wondrous yeah. gift. Yeah. The freedom is not freedom from this conditional world. It's freedom within this conditional world. That, that all you are are these conditions, and you have a freedom within them to make choices. And when you're caught up in addiction, you, you, you can't make choices. You're, you're being propelled by habit. And so freedom is seeing that in every moment we have a choice of how to respond, as opposed to freedom being this thing you get to one day. It, it, it happens here in, in eating and in making rice and in planting. Yes? For, for me, sometimes there's this sense of uh, tremendous clarity. Uh-huh. I just can sort of see in a different way, and the meditation allows me to get to that place. Yes. And I see things in, in with what feels like real clarity. Yes. Yeah, in the Yoga Sutra, one of my favorite texts of yoga, the author, Patanjali, actually takes the word enlightenment, which is called moksha, and he gets rid of it, and he replaces it with this word vidya, which is where we get the Latin word video, which is where we get the English word video, which means to see. So he replaces this notion. So think of 2,000 years ago in India. This is a radical thing to do. To get rid of the word enlightenment and replace it with this word to see. Which is a little bit like to wake up, isn't it? To, to see clearly. To see clearly. Yeah. 
So let, let me continue here for, for did, did, was a hand going on? Yeah. yeah, go ahead. Okay. Um, just further from what someone else said, when I catch myself in a thought or something during the meditation and I bring myself back, and, you know, trying to just, you know, um, label it and not judge it. Mm -hmm. um, but it seems like there's all these little hooks to get stuck on, like the clinging and the grasping and the this and the that, all of which are very strong negative words. Mm -hmm. So if we're, and, and if we're sort of getting caught in these loops of thought and these addictions, what yeah. do we replace it with? Like, um, is this how we're hardwired somehow to sort of, uh, you know, have a series of reactions? And if we're not going to do that, so yes. we're going to withdraw from that, yes. well, then what are we going to do? Not grasping is not so much a withdrawal from grasping, but rather an engagement with what's actually happening. The reason why I don't like the word withdraw is it makes it seem like there's grasping happening and we just step so far back that we can just witness what's going on, which I think is actually a kind of dissociation. Uh, withdraw means, or I would rather replace withdrawal with this word non-attachment, which means noticing reactivity, noticing it, noticing it, noticing it, and then in the noticing reactivity, it starts to gain less power, and then we find ourselves more engaged in what we're feeling. Sometimes the way I think you can do this practice in daily life is every minute you can check in with yourself, how do I feel? Or what do I actually feel right now? And when I do this, sometimes I'm embarrassed that what I'm actually doing, or sometimes even what I'm saying, is not really how I feel. Okay? So non-attachment means not being attached to your reactivity. And What's interesting about this technique is it's not saying get rid of your reactivity. If you ever try to get rid of your reactivity, you will become a highly reactive person because there's so much reactivity and then you're reactive to your reactivity and then you become very reactive to your reactivity about your reactivity, <laughs> which is a recipe that perfectionists like. If you're a perfectionist, then you, you try to get this practice perfect by not having any reactivity, which is impossible. So it means seeing reactivity, but staying there and knowing what reactivity feels like. In other words, non-attachment means being totally engaged, but not identified with what's happening. So when you're sitting and you're breathing and you notice some storytelling, you don't say, bad storyteller, Joyce is, you know, awful, why do I do this? Everything I do, I'm always, you know, the person beside me, she's sitting so still. Why can't I sit like that? If I sat like how, maybe if I had the cushion she has, then I would be able to sit like that. Or if I had her body, maybe I would be able to sit so still. Why was I born in this body? This body is getting old and unreliable and decrepit, right? Maybe this wasn't your story. This is a popular one, though. 
And so, so to notice reactivity, so, so oh, thinking, oh, planning. This gets back to what you mentioned about labels. This is the place where labels are really, oh, thinking. Oh, there's planning happening. It doesn't mean obsessively labeling the whole meditation practice. Uh, it just means like noticing when there's a distraction and, and, and in that moment you've invited it to be there, like a really good host. Hosting it there. And the amazing thing about awareness is that in the light of awareness, whatever you notice gets shy and then doesn't continue its performance. So when you notice wanting, and then you have an object, I really want... um, My neighbor just bought this beautiful four-wheel drive Audi... I don't know what it's called. Such is the most beautiful car I've ever seen. He, he cleans it and vacuums it, and every time I go outside, I want this car. It, it's out of my price range. It's out of my, my ethical uh, commitments, which is maybe why I want it. And um, I desire this car. So one of my practices is when I see the car, and like the perfect family that goes into that car, Instead of being disgusted or envious, and it can flip. Some days it's, you know, all the problems with nuclear family, and another day it's like the most perfect family. Um, Instead of focusing on the car, I focus on what it feels like to want. This is what wanting feels like. And it's very uncomfortable. And through the label of wanting, then I, I, I no longer cling to the object of the car. And I get to know what wanting feels like. And then, like when you really look at wanting, it gets shy. And it stops. And then it comes back again a couple days later. So, this, so now it's been a month since he bought that car. And I don't think about it anymore. In fact, my best friend, who I've been telling about how much I want this car, we walked together past them yesterday. And she noticed that I didn't say anything about the car. (laughs) And I actually don't think about the car anymore. So, you know, this is true for all of us. To to get to know these states, but I want to be clear, you're not trying to get rid of them. You're not trying to get rid of them. And from that state, you can learn what that state feels like. To be one means to be one with everything. To be one, you know, sometimes when we think about spirituality, we think about being one with trees. You You drop acid, you sit under a tree, and you become one with a tree. But that's not what this practice is saying. So yes, being one with a tree, and being one with loneliness and being one with sadness and being one with confusion and being one with joy and being one with equanimity and being one with jealousy. To be one with all of these states that move through us is to be one with the natural world and all of the moods that humans feel in the natural world. 
Can we follow the next two lines? Does anybody have any, any comments? Yes. How do you use this story to the teenagers where they have addictive parents because they have a very strong desire to have a parent in their life but their parents are not available for them? And that's how they are getting more aggressive, more frustrated that they don't have a parent in their life because they are busy doing their job or abusing them or whatever. Yeah. How difficult it is for like materialistic things are very easy to see and then manage your emotions as compared to actual relationships. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Maybe that's why we're so obsessed with material things, because they're easier to control than people. Um, teenagers or, or whomever, you know, they, they at some level, whether they can articulate it or not, they also have needs, just like adults. And one of the things that this practice does is it slows us down and puts us in touch with what our needs are. Sometimes we think that our practice is going to get rid of all of our desires. Desire and needs are not a problem. They're only a problem when we're not in touch with them and we expect everything else around us to change so that our needs can be met. Or uh, we're so out of touch with what we need because we're in the cerebral world of ideas um, that we don't even know what's good for us. So I think tomorrow I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that. Um, but I think that ties in nicely to the next two lines here, which is, um, how can that compare to me here planting the fields and making rice to eat? I love these next two lines. What can you do about the world? And the teacher's response, so this is a student frustrated. It's a little bit like the question you just asked. What can you do about the world? And the teacher responds with one of my favorite lines in all the koans. Uh, what do you call the world? He hears in the question that the world is out there. You know, what do you do about the world? What can I do about the world? The response is, what do you call the world? It's interesting, right? You, you may come into this room, sit still, and you may wonder, what on earth does sitting still like this have to contribute to the world? Or you may say, I'm just doing this for me. <laughs> but then you realize as you go into your experience that what you feel are the same patterns you see out there in the world and you get to know your own capacity for all the things you detest in the culture. I don't want to sit up here and tell you that I want a four-wheel drive Audi station wagon. It's embarrassing. And yet, this is also part of uh, you know, what shows up in me because it's what's around me. So what do you call the world? The world is not just out there. That is not a neighbor who is uh, obsessed with material things, buying a forward, because I want it. And then I can't separate myself. I recognize that same feeling. And when you live in this way, it becomes hard to have enemies. Because, because you can't easily split off and objectify other people or other cultures 
because you recognize that their actions are actions you know in the insanity that is your mind. Like in Tibetan Buddhism, this is called the hungry ghosts. These, these ghosts in us that you can't ever satisfy. Like wanting. You can't ever stop wanting. Have you ever tried to not have desire? Maybe some of you have been in spiritual communities where, where the teaching is that desire is the cause of suffering. And so, so you, you, you don't have desires. The way it often looks is retreats like this. It's lunchtime or it's dinner time, and you say, what do you, and, and there's a group of you, what do you want for dinner? And nobody can decide. I don't know. Whatever you want. I don't have any desire. And meanwhile, they're thinking, if we don't go to Annapurna, I'm going to be angry. You know? But I'm not going to say it because I don't have desire. What do you call the world? to see that the human is made up of non-human elements, to see that our personalities are structured by the culture, by our roles in culture, by our ancestors, and if you go further, that you're made up of 12 billion years of DNA that has conspired to create this unrepeatable you. How incredible is that? And then to, to, to take you with all of your habits and your inadequacies and your judgments and your idiosyncrasies and weird weirdness and to love that and to care for yourself, to take care of yourself because you are just a corner of the culture. And as you take care of yourself, you're taking care of a small corner of the world. And then, when you take care of yourself, you're free to then act and take care of others. And then taking care of others uh, feels like taking care of oneself. What do you call the world? It's like saying, you know, what do you call yourself? Are you so separate from the world? It's also like saying, if you think that planting rice, if you think that, that, that making a nice home is somehow not spiritual, then what do you call the world? Right? It's, it's poking at us, saying, is there something you're doing in your life that, that, that you don't consider your practice? and to roll that into your practice so that it's seamless. The, the human capacity for compartmentalization is so disturbing. And I think that over time, when we start to do this practice, you, you, you can't lie to yourself anymore. This is, this is a value-based practice. And, and ethics start to come naturally out of stillness. When you're not attentive to the body, the relational body, your body starts yelling at you. And, and, and that, I think, is the byproduct of years of practice.
So, any comments or questions before we? Just going to mm-hmm. add to. I, I think you get. I've gotten to the point where I don't want to lie to myself. Uh huh. So it's 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 a, it's a different engagement. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it's like you have to hurt yourself enough that you decide you're going to stop. That is the strangest thing about human beings, isn't it? Uh, but hopefully, stillness brings brings that pro- like allows that process to happen quicker. Sometimes I think the the uh, the, uh, the way you can define mindfulness is like taking a dead end sign that one usually puts at the end of the road and putting it at the beginning. <laughs> you know, because this is what we do. Like like self judgment is like this, right? Self-judgment is having the dead-end sign at the end of the road. You get to the end, and oh, my God, what, what am I doing? I mean, this doesn't help me at all. And over time, we recognize this is a dead-end. So mindfulness is fast-paced. It, it, some people think it's like slowly cutting carrots or something. But, but mindfulness is actually a kind of rushing. It's rushing immediately to what's showing up and really meeting it without fear. Even meeting fear without fear. I'm not sure I can articulate this, but I'm, I'm challenged by our endless capacity to idealize. Mm-hmm. So let's assume that at a certain stage, daily, hourly, um, we look at the conditions over which we don't have immediate control. Yeah. And we want them to be different. And yeah. we're certain that we'll be happy if just these yes. things would be different. Yeah. And then we shift that perspective through a sort of mindfulness, um, understanding that these are always changing conditions and our our sense of peace with them, our happiness, or whatever you want to call it, yeah. is more internal. Uh-huh. And then what can happen, it certainly happened to me and I've seen it with other people, is then you can idealize um, how you should be able to be with everything. Yes. So I watch myself and others that I work with um, not remove themselves from situations that are potentially harmful in an effort to stretch and encompass and be with everything. Yes. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then the water gets really muddy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a really good point. A- and I think one of the ways that this is dealt with is seeing the relationship between ethics and our body. That there's a dance between uh, the stillness that we find viscerally and our ethical commitment to ourselves and others. So, for example, nonviolence. This is the first ethical precept, is not having the intention to cause harm. So you can stretch yourself for a few months and notice that, wow, you have a lot of ideas about who you thought you were. And you realize that, wow, my, my identity is not fixed. My vocabulary for movement is not fixed. My sexuality is not fixed. My ability to live in this city or this city is not fixed. All these things are processes. And yet, there's a point where 
when we're not in conditions where we thrive, um, we begin to shut down. We begin to shut down. And, and this comes out sometimes as resentment or as anger or irritability. I notice this sometimes when, when somebody says something to me and I say to myself, this is idealistic, you know, I'm just going to let go of that. And then two weeks later, they say something like that again, and I say, okay, there's something here. I need to stretch myself a little bit to understand their perspective. But then about three months later, I realize something's not sitting, sitting well here. And, and to continue this style of relating with that person is a kind of violence. It's an injuriousness to us both, because I can't really be here anymore. So you know that letting go didn't happen because there's residue. And if there's residue of resentment, there wasn't letting go. So I'm using that as an example because it's the dance between uh, ethics and values, like not hurting oneself, and um, uh, the experience of checking in in the body to see how long we can tolerate that. So um, I think that's a really good question. I think tomorrow we'll continue continue with that. Um, because I think so often um, we, we uh, do violence in the name of thinking we need to stretch ourselves. Um, and, and it can be subtle how to discern the difference. I could say more about that, but I think I'll stop there. So, our last period of the day is walking meditation, and then we'll come back in here for a short sit. So, um, some of you are going to walk inside, some of us will go across the road and set up just like we did this morning. <laughs>